Good evening. Um, I'm Carola Frege, the uh, chief editor of the British Journal of Industrial Relations, and uh, I would like to welcome you all tonight, a rainy night, so I'm very happy that quite a few people showed up, um, to our fourth annual lecture series. We are very lucky to have Nancy Folbray, uh, who is an economics professor at Amherst, with us tonight. And she's going to talk about um, love and money and the distinctive features of care work. Uh, Nancy is familiar to many of um, you in the audience, so she doesn't really deserve an introduction. She doesn't need an introduction. Ay, 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 Freud, you slip here. And I'm very delighted uh, that my colleague Sarah Ashwin uh, who is a professor in the management department, agreed to say a few words about the imminent oeuvre of Nancy. Thank you so much. Sarah, do you want to come? Yeah. Thank you, Carola. Well, I am absolutely honoured to be introducing Nancy Fulbray as our speaker tonight. As I'm sure you're all aware, Nancy is a, an economist, a feminist economist, um, a key focus of her work has been caring labour, where she's played a vital role in bringing care work into economic theory. My favourite bit, which always makes me feel better about myself, especially at the moment, is the idea of children as public goods. Um, <laughs> um, it gives a bit of meaning to the maternity aspect, but um, it's a, a, obviously a very, very important contribution. She's author of numerous um, books and articles. She's a truly um, a boundary spanner. She publishes in top economics journals, sociology journals, many other kinds of journals in between. She published in the first ever um, issue, I think I'm right in saying, of feminist economics. And um, she's also published very many books, as I've said. In relation to the theme today, she's published several books, um, famously The Invisible Heart, Economics and Family Values, Valuing Children, Rethinking the Economics of the Family. And the, the latest one on, which relates to tonight's theme is this one here that I've got, Greed, Lust and Gen Gender, A History of Economic Ideas. I have to say, this is a great read. It's, you know, you can, it, I mean, it's a brilliant book, but it's also really, really enjoyable. And it makes you feel really humble reading about um, women and feminists um, a century ago and the ideas that they were coming up with then and I'm sort of sitting there thinking oh goodness I'm not original at all all of this has been thought by people a uh, hundred years ago um, so it's a it's a great book um, but also very importantly um, Nancy is a public intellectual her, her latest book actually um, I think shows her role as a public intellectual. That's called Saving State U, Fixing Public Higher Education. I don't actually have a copy of that to show you. But also, in relation to that role, she has a weekly blog at the New York Times, and there's the um, address of it. And um, um, I think you said that this is your, um, well most numerous readership and I think it's also just very important to be interacting with the public. I think we're all realising the importance of being um, public intellectuals but Nancy actually manages it and in relation to very, very important topics. So with that I will give you Nancy. Thank you very much.
Uh, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I have visited the LSC several times in the past and have always found it a very welcoming and also very stimulating environment. So I hope we'll have the opportunity for a lot of um, exchanges of ideas. Um, as you will see, I kind of engaged in something we call bait and switch. I changed the subtitle of my talk, something more provocative and I hope more interesting, a feminist political economy of care. And I, I want to try to persuade you that um, there's some elements of, of a, a feminist social theory, feminist political economy that are, are relevant to understanding um, many aspects of the world we live in other than just gender inequality. So uh, I will talk about care work, but I want to situate it within a larger theoretical perspective, um, thinking about uh, feminist ideas. I, there's a, a really wonderful, well, I. For some reason, I, I really like this Gustave Moreau picture because it's such a sexualized uh, rendition of the Sphinx. But I, I wanted to show it to you because there's a poem by uh, the, uh, Muriel Roy Kayser that I, I use as kind of an epigraph in, in, in Greed and Lust. And it, she says, uh, imagine Oedipus at the end of his life. Um, he, he, uh, his life hasn't gone very well, if you remember. Uh, uh, and uh, you know he has uh, killed his father, slept with his mother, and in his great regret and sorrow and humiliation and shame, he's blinded himself. He he comes across the the Sphinx. He hears the voice. He hears a voice, and he's quite angry. He says, "Why you know why why has this happened to me? Why am I suffering so?" And the Sphinx says, "Well, you know you you, you didn't answer the riddle. You didn't get it. You know it, I asked you a question and you, you gave the wrong answer. And he says, what do you mean I gave the wrong answer? You asked me, what is it that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? And I told you, obviously, it's man who, is, as a child, crawls, and as a man, in the, in the middle of his life, walks on two feet, and then when he grows old, walks with the help of a cane. This was a brilliant answer. And the Sphinx says, well, well, you said it was man. What, what, about, what about woman? And Oedipus says, well, don't be ridiculous. Everybody knows that when you say man, women are included. And the Sphinx says, well, that's what you think. <laughs> so um, in a way, I think um, I tell this story because I really think what is most interesting about feminist theory is the way that it, it alters our perception um, of the larger set of social relations that we inhabit. Um, in ways that reach well beyond specific areas that we associate with feminist argument or feminist logic, like care work. So let me just take a minute to tell you what I think the, uh, my definition of a feminist political economy is. It's a social scientific perspective that explores the significance of collective identity and collective action based on gender, including but not limited to but definitely including social conflict over the distribution of the costs of caring for dependents. Um, this is a dimension of collective conflict that's not really encompassed by um, Marxian political economy and certainly not by neoclassical economics, um, which is not, doesn't offer a very, uh, very much attention to collective identity or conflict um, in general. I think as I apply it, this perspective represents a bit of a hybrid of different theoretical perspectives. It acknowledges the importance of individual choice as well as group identity. It emphasizes the complexity of human motivation. That's where the for love and money comes in. 
and it highlights the importance of unpaid work as well as paid work. So I'm going to give you a very rapid-fire tour of, of uh, the relevance and application of these ideas uh, to care work in particular. I want to start out, so there are three, three things I will cover, and um, I, I think I'll try to be as brief as I can about the first two and really focus on the third, which I think uh, bears more directly on some of the political dilemmas that we're facing um, in the global economy as a whole, in particular in the, in the, in the US and, and the UK. Uh, but first, a little bit about care anxieties and gender roles. Secondly, a bit of a review of empirical research on care work. I want to share some results of some uh, research I've been doing with a group on care work in the United States. And then thirdly, this issue, which I think really does um, speak to current debates in an interesting way, how and why social norms and individual preferences um, for care contribute to gender inequality. And I'm going to, I think, give a somewhat um, offer a somewhat different uh, take on that issue than, than um, a lot of other feminist social scientists offer. So care anxieties and gender roles. Uh, I actually got interested in this first in the realm of intellectual history, but I think it, you can also sort of apply it to a, a process of cultural deconstruction and even to economic analysis. So uh, this, this is a graphic actually from a, a book I wrote in 1994 called Who Pays for the Kids that really, uh, I think, captures the essence of the economy as a circular flow between production and reproduction. It's not just a factory in which goods and services are being produced. It's also an assembly line in which workers are being produced and their capacity to work is being um, uh, reproduced. And so that's the part of the circular flow of the economic system that I think is encompassed by that term care. But I think care is a theme in Western intellectual history is uh, offers a fascinating window into a kind of dialectic between self-interest, uh, a traditionally kind of masculine arena, and uh, love, care for others, concern for others. So the love and money, uh, tension and care work is in some ways a rendering of our concepts of masculinity and femininity. And I think this goes, this is very deeply embedded in the history of Western culture. And I think the story of King Midas is a very good, uh, offers a very good summary of that, that, that Midas asking for a wish that everything, he might, that everything he touches will be turned to gold, is horrified to learn that he's touched his daughter and rendered her lifeless as, as a statue. So there's this anxiety that the pursuit of economic self-interest will actually poison or, or, um, or damage that which we most hold dear. And this is often a very gendered story in which men represent the self-interest and women represent um, the, the altruism. So that's a, a major theme in Greed, Lust, and Gender. Um, this is a, uh, this cover image I really love. It's a William Blake um, image of Eve in the Garden of Eden and, and Eve at the fore under, under the magnificent serpent, dragon-like serpent. And Adam seems to have gone to sleep. I, I'm not or he's been knocked out, or somehow he's, he, he's um, having a bad dream. Um, and um, I think this 
kind of intellectual history of the treatment of greed and lust actually connects up to a lot of uh, uh, current anxieties about care and care work. So let me, when I use this term self-interest, I want to be very uh, careful to specify what I'm talking about because it's a word that can encompass many, many different um, many different places along a complex kind of continuum. So I want you to imagine a kind of continuum between being completely selfless, being not at all concerned uh, for one's own uh, well-being, and at the opposite extreme, being selfish, uh, having, um, having absolutely no concern for anybody else. And so altruism is not something, is not a trait that's at one extreme at the opposite of selfishness. It's actually kind of in between. It's a little, it, it's a kind of, uh, can be seen as a balance between the two. And you can define it in a sense in terms of the weight that you place on the well-being of, of, of other people. It doesn't mean that you don't place also some weight on your own well-being. But where are you? Where are we on this continuum? Where do we place uh, men? Where, where do we place women? At what point uh, do we uh, accuse men of being selfish? And is that a different point than the point that we might accuse women of being self-interest, being selfish? So um, one of the things I do in, in uh, Greed and Lust is argue that these set points are located very, very differently for men and women. And that uh, women have historically been stigmatized much more quickly and much more harshly for the pursuit of money um, than men have been, although um, we see a process of kind of catching up over time um, with the development of, of, uh, of capitalism in both the US and France and the UK, we see kind of an evolution of, of ideas about um, increasingly, increasing the amount of permission that women have to be more self-interested, even to be diverge on the selfish. And there, there are three 19th century antecedents that I think are particularly important to the book. And the ones that, I, that are dearest to my heart are the, the early utopian socialists, um, sometimes known as Ricardian socialists, William Thompson and Anna Wheeler, Irish uh, political economists, who argued that women, oh, by the way, they didn't, they don't actually look like Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep. But in the movie, in the movie I hope to make about them someday, I thought they should be played by these actors. <laughs> and I couldn't really find good images of the way they looked, so I just thought I would indulge my fantasy about how, how they should be portrayed. Uh, but, the, the, uh, you know, back in 1825, they actually uh, outline a pretty consistent argument of socialist feminism that women will always be disadvantaged by any competitive economic system because they tend to take more responsibility than men for the care of children and other dependents. And this is an argument that contends with some very other important feminist arguments in the 19th century. Uh, and feminism itself in the 19th century is struggling with the tensions between liberal feminism and socialist feminism, which I think actually can be characterized in terms of the this, this spectrum that I've described to you. Uh, you know, liberal feminists are kind of arguing that women should be moved, moved towards, more towards masculine roles, that women should have the right to be just as self-interested as men. Um, and socialist feminists are pushing the other way and saying, well, we agree there should be more similarity between men and women, but we think men should be nudged 
in the direction of being more altruistic and taking more responsibility for the care um, of, of dependents. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton and um, Susan B. Anthony, who are both very important to the evolution of feminist thought in the US, kind of go back and forth between these two arguments, in a somewhat opportunistic, but, but also kind of uh, 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 genuinely, uh, genuinely struggling with the ideas uh, kind of way. And you can also see this even to some extent in the work of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, even though they are more in the liberal feminist camp, uh, a lot of the scholarship on their thinking and their ideas describes Taylor in particular as nudging Mill a little bit more in the socialist direction. And I think there's a very interesting kind of deconstruction of their ideas uh, um, about gender that, that really draws extensively on these concepts of self-interest um, and, and altruism. So, okay, I've already, I've already kind of made this point, and besides this slide doesn't have a picture on it, so let's, let's get rid of it. Uh, I, I um, think that there's a lot of uh, evidence today in kind of Anglo-American culture about a kind of fear that women actually might abandon their commitment to caring about others, and that the consequences of that could be quite, um, might be quite uh, unpleasant, even horrifying. And uh, along with that, we see a kind of appropriation of the vocabulary of care into the commercial realm. And it's often used as a kind of reassurance that the quality of services will be very high, and that you can trust uh, the, the uh, services, products or services that you're buying, um, more than you could otherwise uh, if you can be persuaded that the company that's providing the service actually genuinely uh, does care for you. So I actually have an immense collection of advertisements that use the word care, and I, I just plucked out my favorite one from the Sheraton Hotel. Of course, uh, the answer to that question is that the Sheraton Hotel is taking care of you if you, if you, um, if you check in um, to their hotel. Uh, but you can find this in customer service now in many areas for many firms is now called the customer care department and uh, uh, you don't need to look far to find invocations of it. In fact, the phrase we care has been trademarked so it's now private property and so is the term we care more has also been trademarked. <laughs> we care about you completely has been trademarked. I actually considered uh, trademarking the phrase, I don't believe you really care. <laughs> However, I learned that it costs a lot of money to, to, to trademark a phrase, so I haven't done it. If you look at images of, uh, of, of feminine care and femininity in popular culture, what you see is that femininity has really evolved in ways that have kind of, in, in which uh, women appear empowered if they have relinquished responsibilities for care. And what you see are sort of highly sexualized images of women uh, that, have, that are completely non-maternal. In other words, women become, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, uh, androgenic transformation of femininity. So the female martial artist or the female um, uh, soldier or the female spy uh, becomes uh, kind of an idealization of a kind of a new form of femininity. So, these are old examples, and, and I don't know if they're, you know, they may be out of date and, 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 and not as 
uh, culturally appropriate as others that you might come up with. But I've always been a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy does not do any babysitting. Baby, Buffy has no children, and Buffy does not babysit. Buffy slays vampires. The uh, sort of feudal version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is Xena the Warrior Princess. And there's a wonderful story about Xena that I learned from um, actually a member of an audience at a talk very similar to this, which is that the producers of this show uh, really wanted to, uh, to figure out a way to appeal to a, a younger demographic, uh, sorry, a slightly older demographic of women with children. So they wanted to figure out a way that Xena, the warrior princess, could have a child. But they had a hard time reconciling this with her, uh, her image as, you know, the whole script was written about, about her as a fighter, of course, killing gnomes and wizards instead of vampires and zombies. But pretty, very, you know, very, very similar to Buffy the, the Vampire Slayer. So the way the, the writers of the script solved the problem was they had Xena bear a child, a daughter, and then she was frozen in ice by an evil wizard, and the series resumed 20 years later when the daughter could fight by her side. Okay, a very good solution to the childcare problem. So uh, uh, I, I, I guess my point here is that you can see, in fact, that there is reason, a little bit of reason to be anxious about the treatment of care in popular culture because uh, now that it's no longer women's responsibility to care completely, the question emerges, well, who is going to provide care? And I believe that norms of masculinity are changing in our culture, but they're changing much more slowly. And in general, the images of men as caregivers are somewhat more stigmatized and stigmatizing than images of women as fighters. And so there's a little asymmetry there that kind of uh, sets the stage for thinking about um, some of the concerns that we might have about changes in, in gender roles. Uh, capitalism tends to be depicted in kind of masculine terms. This is a particularly vivid example of the video game, capitalism, the ultimate strategy game of money, power, and wealth, um, which you might want to play online if you don't have enough money to play it in real life. Um, and uh, the welfare state, on the other hand, is, is treated in very much in feminine terms. Uh, and uh, this is an old uh, uh, British punk rock album, but there are many other uh, great examples. Here's a, a, a recent um, political cartoon from the U.S. that shows the debt crisis as the, the nanny state, um, you know, pretending to be caring for the child but actually threatening it by virtue of its uh, getting out of proportion and, and, um, and you know, it's drooling over the child about to snatch it up in its jaws. Or here's another one from The Economist. Um, I'm not quite sure which English politician that's meant to be. Uh, does anybody know? But uh, what, what's at stake is very relevant. It's budget cuts. And the budget cuts are, are basically the pregnant belly of the, the welfare state. So uh, uh, if any of you run across similar cartoons or images, I hope you'll contribute to my collection because I think they uh, provide not conclusive proof, but, but kind of uh, a vivid illustration of my point that um, the discourse of the welfare state and of, of, um, of care in general is a highly gendered uh, discourse. Another way in which this uh, concern about care enters into the larger policy debates 
is fear of declining birth rates, particularly in uh, Japan, Korea, East Asia, and the Mediterranean countries. Uh, wanted more babies, uh, what's happening to, to the, the birth rate, what's happening to the age structure of the population, uh, what, what uh, uh, are, are, do we have enough women to take care of the elderly uh, now that we're producing um, um, uh, fewer of them? I think that's another example of, of a source of anxiety about care. And I, I'm just going to give you one example of, uh, uh, that kind of illustrates the economic anxiety about care. The price of schooling and the price of care for the elderly have, in the United States, and I'm sure this is true for England as well, has gone up much more rapidly than the cost of personal consumption expenditures. Um, I don't have a slide for it here, but I recently read an article in The Economist about the rapid rate of escalation and the cost of, of purchase childcare in the UK. And the reason for that is not hard to find. It's that, uh, uh, at one point in the not-too-distant past, women had very few economic opportunities outside of the care sector. So uh, nurses and teachers did not earn very much relative to other workers. As opportunities for women have expanded, uh, so too have their relative wages and their relative bargaining power, and that has driven up the price of care that was once, in a sense, subsidized by a, a kind of patriarchal uh, set of policies that constricted women's uh, opportunities for other roles. So th there is actually truth. There, there's a legitimate concern that once upon a time we had a pretty ample supply of care work, which we guaranteed uh, by force of some fairly coercive restrictions. So what happens when we eliminate those restrictions? Is the supply of care going to decline? And I believe actually that there are a lot of uh, reasons to believe um, that it is doing so and that efforts to deal with that um, bear directly on discussions of our current economic situation. So now let me shift a little bit um, to the care work research agenda and kind of summarize what I think some really interesting issues are in empirical research uh, before I come around to my, my third theme which is more about uh, uh, kind of the, the wise and uh, wherefores of the undervaluation of care. So this care work is now a very, very big and very, very diverse area of research. And I have mapped out four little continents here uh, of interesting research. We can come back to this in the, in the um, questions if you have um, particular interests about uh, uh, some of these themes. But I, I just want to very briefly alert you to the fact that there's a lot of discussion about alternative definitions of care, uh, about the relationship between care and intrinsic motivation. There's uh, a lot of empirical research on unpaid care, how much time is devoted to it, uh, time use surveys, which are now being conducted in most of the major countries of the world allow us to quantify time devoted to unpaid care fairly precisely, even though there's some big measurement problems that remain. And likewise, there's a lot of attention to the characteristics of paid employment in care work, looking at working conditions, turnover, the labor process, so forth and so on. 
uh, a big literature now on comparative systems, varieties of capitalism, how do they differ in terms of care regimes, what do they mean in terms of public finance, how much money are we devoting to the care of dependents compared to other sources, and then a huge policy agenda running the gamut from work family policy um, to employment policy. I'm going to offer you some very rash generalizations about this empirical work on care. Um, women researchers represent a majority of scholars doing work in this area. A major theme of this research is that care helps explain gender inequality. The causality is very clear. Time devoted to family care reduces market earnings. It reduces lifetime income. It reduces bargaining power in the family. In the paid labor force, many care occupations are undervalued and underpaid. Specialization in care occupations, nursing, teaching, child care, elder care, that's a major aspect of occupational segregation. Most of the policy analysis calls for public investment in care provision to improve both equity and efficiency. So this is an area of research that actually fits um, pretty neatly into a larger analysis of feminist political economy, even though it's seldom explicitly framed that way. Um, now I want to tell you a little bit about a, an interdisciplinary project, a collaborative project that I've been involved on in the US to look at care provision uh, under the rubric of this title for love and money. What's distinctive about it, it's a forthcoming book that the Russell Sage Foundation will be publishing um, this spring. What's, what's distinctive about it is it tries to look at the care sector as a whole. That is, to look at both unpaid care through time use and paid care through analysis of wages and earnings, and to look at care for children and for adults, whether, whether they are the frail elderly or whether they are individuals who are, are disabled. And it tries to include both theoretical, empirical, and US policy focused discussion. So it's an effort to break out of this kind of these little research silos in which some people specialize on this and some people on that and some people do empirical measures of this and some of that and, and to say, well, what is the care sector as a whole? And the way that we define care work, and this is a definition that spans both unpaid and paid work, is work where concern for the well-being of the care recipient is likely to affect the quality of the services that is being provided. There are a lot of reasons to settle on this definition, but to me, they derive primarily from the insights of behavioral and institutional economics that intrinsic motivation often helps solve problems of monitoring the, uh, um, the um, effort and the output of forms of work where quality is difficult to measure and where the market is not always a good arbiter of quality services. So the, the traditional image Econom of an, uh, that economists have of a competitive market where consumers know what they're getting and if they don't like it they can go elsewhere because they're fully informed and they have freedom of choice doesn't work very well when the consumers are young children or individuals who are sick or suffering from disability or the frail elderly and so we rely very heavily on the recruitment um, of workers that have an intrinsic motivation 
that doesn't work to the exclusion of concern about wages or the exclusion of an extrinsic uh, incentives, but which is often combined with those in a very complex way for love and money that has really important implications for how this particular division of labor works. I'm going to skip over that slide. Uh, probably you are familiar with time use data for the UK that shows results very similar to this. That, that roughly the amount of time that is devoted to unpaid work is about the same that, than the to, as the total amount of time devoted um, to paid work. Uh, women do slightly more unpaid work, men do slightly more paid work, but um, in terms of the aggregate number of hours, it's sort of remarkable that in the two, and actually not just the US and the UK, but most other advanced industrial countries that we think of as being really capitalist economies, about half of all the work that's being performed is taking place outside of a um, pay per unit uh, uh, of, of output or effort um, kind of logic. So it's a, a very big sector of the overall economy. Uh, in terms of paid care work, about 14% of the paid labor force in the US, and I would guess that, some, that percentage is pretty similar in the UK, is basically uh, devoted to paid care, mostly in health or education. It's a very heterogeneous sector, some relatively high-paying jobs, a lot of relatively low-paying jobs. Uh, but wherever you are in paid care work, if you control for the level of education and experience, you still see a wage penalty. These jobs pay less than other occupations, all else equal. Um, even in a pretty rigorous econometric fixed effects model that takes a lot of other variables into account. So I think there's a lot of substantiation of, of care penalty. One of the advantages of looking at paid and unpaid work together is you can actually treat the, the occupation of housewife and see how it relates to the overall, to the rest of the labor force. It allows you to unify the picture of how um, of, of what your labor force looks like, essentially saying we're going to designate, and this is what this, this these figures do, if a woman does not have a paid job and specializes in providing care for, a, for family members, we're going to assign her the occupation of homemaker. And in the United States, in 2000, homemakers represented about 16% of all workers. That is more workers, that's a greater percentage of workers than were in manufacturing in the US. This categorization also has implications for thinking about occupational segregation because you can look at occupational segregation not just in terms of, of paid work, but also the movement of women into um, paid work from this implicit occupation of homemaker has actually reduced occupational segregation far more over time than just a look at paid um, occupations as a whole will show. The book also includes a critical analysis of US policy um, and these themes uh, can be summarized as follows. There's a lot of unmet need. There's a lot of inequality along lines of class, race, and gender. There's a lot of geographic inequality because state policies in the US 
have a tremendous impact, uh, especially in terms of provision of early childhood education and the types of home care services that are provided, very decentralized in the U.S., therefore a lot of geographic um, inequality. Um, one of the things I learned from this, uh, uh, the policy analysis we conducted is that it's very hard to actually uh, look at the big picture of care policy because there are very few uh, facts, figures, numbers that are, that are arranged in this way that allow us to look at care spending as a whole or um, to break down public finance in that way. So I think it's a really important empirical research agenda, but I think that the question that comes up again and again that really comes to the kind of heart uh, of the debate is the question about uh, why women specialize in care work, whether it's unpaid or paid. Uh, why is it that women seem to have a revealed preference to engage in these forms of work, even in the absence of very explicit forms of discrimination and access to education uh, or training? Uh, and what uh, what impact do these preferences have and what preferences do our economic system reward? So now I want to kind of get to what I think is the really, real, the heart of the matter by, by addressing these three questions in turn. And um, hope also you'll have some um, comments, objections, quarrels, uh, reactions to them. There's now a growing emphasis on, I'm putting preferences in quotation marks because economists use the word sometimes in a, 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 a narrower way than other social scientists. You could as easily speak of social norms. In my view, a lot of individuals internalize social norms in the form of individual preferences. Uh, I think there's a growing uh, now attention to gender-based preferences. Uh, Catherine Hakim, uh, has written extensively about differences in preferences among women, the fact that some women uh, actually prefer to be in family-friendly jobs even though they might uh, pay less. Uh, Shelley Taylor is an American psychologist who I think has done some very interesting work on the tending instinct, showing that women derive some intrinsic benefits from just from the very process of care, tending to others. There's also a, a psychologist, Susan Pinker, who kind of updates the evolutionary biology literature um, in its emphasis on um, uh, uh, the satisfaction that women uh, seem to derive from care of children in particular. Um, George Akerlof and Rachel Cranton have a new book called Economics, The Economics of Identity, and they also put a big emphasis on the, uh, the, the norms that seem to generate differences in individual preferences uh, um, that lead to a, a kind of uh, very, uh, very distinct difference between men and women. But the really big question, uh, and I think the most important question in this debate, is why do women have different seem to have different preferences than men. Why are there revealed preferences, uh, so such caring preferences? And there are a lot of answers that can be given to this question, and I don't think any of them are mutually exclusive. In fact, I think that the real challenge for researchers is to try to sort out the relative importance of these answers, and I'm not going to exclude any of them from consideration. 
Personally, I think there are biological predispositions that are relevant to the argument, but this doesn't have consequences for the overall claims that I'm making. Um, and in fact, I don't think it matters a, a whole lot, partly because we've learned, actually, we may actually be better at changing our own biology than we are at changing our culture. It seems to be easier to, to uh, uh, redesign DNA than to redesign uh, cultural norms. Uh, so the, the idea that to say that it's biological means somehow it's more resistant to change is, I, I think, no longer very, a very credible argument. But we, we can get into that later. There's certainly a lot of institutional constraints. There's a lot of cultural inertia. In my work, I have been really fascinated by a process of preference formation that I would call endogenous preferences, just kind of like you acquire a preference for doing something by doing it. And so if you're assigned that role, um, you tend to um, begin to identify with it in a more profound way. But I think there's also the really rich set of ideas about bargaining asymmetries that have to do with a game that economists have described called a chicken game. The chicken game is a game in which um, the loser is the one who swerves first. And if you start out in a world in which women care a little bit more about children than men do, it's easier for men, it becomes easier for men to withdraw care because they can be fairly assured that women will provide it. And um, this comes up in a lot of the discussion of, of game theoretic models of what happens to unconditional cooperators in simulation games, playing the prisoner's dilemma or other game theoretic models. To be an unconditional cooperator is almost always to become the victim of an opportunist. And so I think the language and the terminology of game theory actually offers some pretty powerful insights into the asymmetries that we see. Um, the endogenous preferences argument, I think, is, is really aptly illustrated by the parable of Ulysses and the Sirens. And, and just notice, in, in passing, what a gendered story that is, that Ulysses knows that if he hears the sirens, he will be um, seduced into throwing himself overboard and... Uh, losing his ship and all of his sailors because of the beauty of the siren's voices. So if you remember in the myth, he puts wax in his sailors' ears so they won't hear it. But he wants to hear the beautiful voices. So he instructs them to tie him to the mast so that he can hear them, but he will not be able to, he won't succumb to them. He'll be, rest, be restrained um, by... Um, the ropes from succumbing to the siren song. Um, and there are a lot of ways in which care works that way. That people know that if they enter into a relationship with a dependent, they are likely to become very attached to that uh, person or that thing or, you know, or that animal or that, uh, you know, uh, attachment is a very powerful psychological process. And if you listen to the language that care workers use to describe their work and their commitments, you see that it actually uses, it, it, it kind of suggests that in fact their preferences are shaped by the work itself. So I didn't expect this, I didn't want it, but my heart is involved now. 
I love them, that's all. You can't help it. Um, and so there's a sense in which um, caregivers become kind of prisoners of love. It's a phrase from an old rock song. You know, two, I need no shackles to remind me I'm just a prisoner of love. I mean, in fact, we often describe love as something over which we don't exercise a choice and we are held captive by it. And a lot of forms of care work kind of fit into that categorization. So what are the implications of thinking about care this way? Well, the most common response, and I think this response helps explain kind of resistance to the argument, is that, well, it's, isn't it great that women want to care and they can care and if they're making a choice on their own and they're not constrained, we shouldn't really worry about it. it that you know, it, Virtue hath its own reward. If they choose a job that pays less money, it must be because it's worth it to them. They've made a rational cost-benefit calculation, and they've decided that they don't mind the higher risk of living in poverty or the higher risk of domestic violence or the higher risk that their children themselves might um, experience uh, poverty. And... Um, Okay, maybe this cartoon fits a little bit better with the endogenous preference theme. I guess my point here, the reason I, I like this is that, you know, there's now a lot of evidence from behavioral economics that we don't really know what makes us happy. And um, unfortunately, there's some things that's easier to experiment than others. You know, like, I actually bought a sports car two years ago. I thought, you know, okay, it was kind of a midlife crisis thing. It was a used sport. It was a very inexpensive sports car. It was a very beautiful sports car. I could experiment and I decided after six months of driving it that it was actually unbelievably impractical and I sold it. Easy to experiment. A lot of care relationships you cannot experiment with and so you, you, cannot, you can't really test it out. You know, like will being a mother make me happy? There is only one way to find out and once you do, you're, you're stuck. Kind of. That, that's what I mean by the prisoner of love uh, dynamic. And I think what's interesting is that we actually don't really know whether having raising children makes people happy or not. There's a lot of disagreement among happiness researchers about this. Uh, parents of young children are actually pretty, pretty stressed out and not happier than others, you know, trolling for it. But we don't know what it is over their lifetimes, we don't know how it shapes out. But I, I'm particularly interested in this behavioral economics literature that there's a, a kind of difference of opinion, like Dan Gilbert, uh, who's a behavioral economist that thinks people really have no idea what will make them happy, and they often make decisions. They think they're making good decisions, but they, you know, they, they're clueless. So if they're happy, happy, it's only because they stumble on it. Well, he kind of argues that p parenting is kind of a hoax that nobody, nobody who's a parent really tells you how difficult it is and so you take it on and then you discover that it's actually pretty stressful but you don't tell anybody else. Uh, which may or may not be true. Um, Dan Ariely, who's another really great uh, behavioral economist, makes just the opposite argument that in our culture we put too much emphasis on money and income and not enough on things like relation, personal relationships that really make us happy. But isn't it interesting now that the, even the economics profession has moved away from the notion that we all do make decisions about what makes us happy and that we can take that for granted. And the fact that we don't really know, I think, should give us pause 
when we in, in, hear that argument that, uh, about uh, compensating differentials. I mean, you could sort of say, it, notice you could say the same thing about smoking. Well, you know, everybody knows that smoking causes cancer. So if you smoke, it must be because you've made a decision that the, the pleasures of, of the nicotine surpass those of a longer life expectancy or the pleasures of eating a chocolate cake. You know, you may know it will clog your arteries, but if you're a rational agent, you know, you're free to choose and should choose. But the point is, is that care falls into the category of decisions that have consequences that human beings are probably not very good at calculating. And that's why it's so relevant that the decision to provide care leads to lower wages and more poverty less bargaining power, less political and cultural influence, which I think is pretty momentous. Um, and actually in um, Susan Pinker's treatment, she argues that a lot of the, the mental illness and psychological problems that women have in terms of susceptibility to depression, anxiety, shame, um, et cetera, are very much related to their greater empathy and, and commitment um, to care. So what are the long-run consequences of this discussion, of this trend, of this process, of this sort of evolution of Western civilization, as it were. Well, one of them is I think we're living through a period in which there's a lot of cultural renegotiation and collective bargaining between men and women over how to share care more equitably. And I think this is unfolding everywhere around the world. Uh, that could be a solution to the care problem. That is, women say, guess what? I'm going to withdraw some of my care, and so you're going to have to care more. And maybe that men are saying, I get it. You're bringing home more money, and so I have to provide more care. And maybe there will be increased adjustment um, in that direction. Uh, we also see around the world is increased concern with better training, regulation, and valuation of paid care work. It's part of the same renegotiation. That is, women who are nurses and teachers are saying there are reasons why the market undervalues the services I provide, and I want to set higher standards for training, for credentials, and for quality in this sector and demand higher wages for this work. It's kind of an extension of an earlier discourse about comparable worth. Um, the whole welfare state debate, is welfare spending sustainable? Can we improve institutional design? Can we develop sustainable social insurance for care and caregivers? A lot of this has to do with the fact that care is now increasingly coming through the state rather than through the family, and we can't rely on women um, or even women and men together to provide it because there are reasons to believe that socializing it um, improves the efficiency and the equity uh, of its provisions. But there are also kind of some negative possibilities uh, or some, some ways of confronting this problem that are not so, um, not so, uh, not such a, a healthy form of adjustment. Intensified efforts to offload costs onto low-wage workers, regardless of gender, especially immigrants. And there's a lot of evidence that the more you have a kind of safety valve of low-wage immigrant labor, the more you can postpone a real reckoning of how you should organize um, care provision, because you can just continue a kind of um, uh, uh, low-wage strategy of, um, of minimizing those costs. 
And of course, another possibility is that we'll just simply decide that let's have less care. Care is very costly. The price of something goes up, we buy less of it. So if care is getting less costly, let's just let's just reduce um, our commitment to it and become less caring. And in fact, becoming less caring is a, is, a, is, a, is a very good way to become a lot more economically efficient and economically successful, uh, especially in a competitive market economy in which um, care costs are, are kind of a, a, a dispensable form of, uh, of overhead. So my preference, uh, uh, which I'm sure you have discerned, uh, is to move towards the, what I would describe as the healthy solutions to those problems, uh, ne negotiating a better uh, distribution of care responsibilities, not just between men and women, but between uh, private and public. Um, but um, I'm not at all sure that that's the direction that we're going in. I thought I would end with a, uh, a, a picture for you of the poster that kind of inspired the Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States um, starting in September this fall. Um, it's a very gendered picture. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what the dancer means on top of the bowl. Uh, but uh, I think it means that we should stop and think about um, the future of Western civilization or something like that. Uh, so uh, that's it. Thank you very much. And, uh, Nancy, thank you very much for this amazingly stimulating and thought-provoking talk. Um, can we have questions and comments? Yeah. Do, do, do you want to just say your name, introduce yourself quickly, and then there? Um, yeah. um, hi, my name is Ludovica, and um, I've been uh, um, thinking about this stuff for the last four years full-time on a PhD, so I'm quite excited that you're here. Um, I've got a few, few comments, questions, um, starting from probably your last, one of your last slides. Um, the nice scenario kind of uh, uh, possible long-run possibility, uh, training, improving in, improvement in standards, um, that affecting quality and that actually affecting wages. So we're talking about um, the kind of the paid work side of the, of the coin. Um, yes, uh, but then um, I agree, and I agree that that would be in a way uh, wonderful, <laughs> but uh, I tend to stumble on the fact that care seems, seems to have uh, um, this problem, many problems of being um, not not always active is also a passive activity, and that comes up in uh, in uh, uh, when we actually look at the other side of the coin and the unpaid care in the time measurement kind of literature, and then we see that we have all those problems. What if when the children are playing upstairs, I cannot actually go anywhere? I have to stay at home, but I'm not actively taking care of them. Actually, the same thing comes up if, he, if children are napping in the nursery. So what are you doing? Yeah, you plan activities, you do other things, but actually if one is crying, you might not be able to do that. So there is that aspect. 
And, there is, and the fact that care is both active and passive, and the fact that it's actually not always an activity, but actually a responsibility, which opens up all the problem of how we redistribute it as yeah. a responsibility. Uh, that means that actually a discourse around skills, which is always, always framed in such an active, kind of agentic way, <laughs> doesn't always work. So I think that also there, there is something in terms of we need to think better and harder in terms of how we go around, how um, going down that route is actually um, feasible given what care entails. Yeah, I, that's a very, very interesting point. And I think you're absolutely right to, to emphasize that we shouldn't assume upfront that um, simply by emphasizing caring skills, we can arrive at a better valuation of care work. I do think that care work involves very particular, a very particular set of what I would call person-specific skills. And that being available and being on call for a child or a sick person or an elderly person who needs assistance um, is actually a pretty profound aspect of developing person-specific knowledge of what that person's rhythms, needs, um, possibilities are, and that in general the discourse on skill uh, tends to treat it as though it's something kind of easy to measure and abstract and not related to the development of personal relationships. But what's actually distinctive about care work is that often to care effectively for someone you have to know them, and it takes time and commitment to know them. So um, if that involves some time in which um, you're not uh, engaging in an activity that can be easily as easily measured as, say, checking out food at the grocery store, I, I don't think we should be troubled by it. Um, but I think this is exactly the reason why, the, the issues that you raise, this is exactly the reason why we need a, 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 new, a new wave of empirical research about the organization of care work and about the definition of skill. And, you know, essentially what I care most about is the possibility of stimulating more focused research on, on these questions. I, I don't want to propose, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a simple political solution. I think it's actually very, very complicated to figure out how we should organize care and how we should reward it. But I'm just so tired of trying to figure this out by myself. Uh, I really need help. Uh, that's why I'm here. Yes, Diane. Oh, okay, sorry. One, two, three. Sorry. Um, hi, I'm Prab, and uh, I've just recently started interning uh, with a care organization. Can you speak up a touch? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering, like this year there's been a lot of uh, focus on women in, in employment and uh, with the government talking about untapping the potential of a fully-fledged female workforce and how that could, you know, stimulate uh, the economy. Um, so do you think the kind of model of having um, work, a uh, work model, flexible around care, would that be successful? And if so, how would that go about kind of, I don't know, reinforcing itself? 
Thank you. That's also a very good question. I, yes, I think in both the U.S. and the U.K., there's a lot of scope to move towards the development of more flexible work arrangements that would impose a smaller penalty on part-time or part-week work and uh, would also involve reorganizing school and, and child care provisions so that it synchronizes better than it currently does um, with a, a work week. Um, and I think that there's a lot of an institutional inertia that has left us with an essentially kind of male model of employment and that we need to really challenge that and move beyond it. I also think there's tremendous scope for employment creation around better social care jobs and that um, uh, in terms of, of what economists like to call investments in human capital, that there is tremendous scope to improve the quality and efficiency of, uh, uh, of, the, of the labor force um, through job creation. I, I consider that a part of our social infrastructure that should be a focus of job creation efforts. Does that, does that help? Gives you an idea of which, what direction I, I would go in any way. Diane, do you understand? Uh, yeah, I'm Diane. Um, you, you, you said you think there needs to be more research. Well, as an academic, I'm always keen on that. But um, the, the, there was a report out just this week in the UK by the um, Equalities and Human Rights Commission, uh, which was looking at the provision of social care in the UK, and it drew on a range of research um, you know, focus groups, interviews with carers, with the cared for and relatives and so on. And um, it, it came up with very mixed kind of findings about the quality of care provision uh, yeah. in the UK, including some really quite uh, horrific stories. And uh, some of the reasons for that are the way in which care is provided through um, local authorities responsible for the provision of care but it's delivered through a series of agencies and so on, many of whom are given very uh, precise tasks, 15 minute slots to meet the needs of a particular uh, person in need of care and um, the response in the press was really quite um, virul virulent against the care workers and including one manager of, uh, of, of care providers, a local authority, who suggested that care workers might be tagged in order that their working hours could actually be effectively monitored. And at the same time during this week, we also had a report out on the pay differences by the chief executives. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts, of, and, and massive you know, inequalities revealed, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about the way in which... Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's such a strong um, negative kind of approach to the people who are actually involved in providing these services uh, that, you know, I think it becomes quite problematic to think about how... I mean, my question really is, why is it that you think care is so lowly valued socially? I mean, just one other piece of information. In the latest um, budget... Uh, report the spending review there's million billions going into roads and a, a very small sum going into the uh, investment of uh, under two education so how can you persuade people about the value of care 
and how can you persuade people that those people providing care should be paid appropriately? In two sentences or less. <laughs> um, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree it's difficult. I think there, to me, the, the um, disrespectful attitudes towards care workers are, represent sort of the combined legacy of um, the de traditional devaluation of women's work and of care and conflicts between um, among workers and between private sector and public sector workers that I think um, are an increasingly important feature of the political landscape here and in the, the U.S. And um, uh, uh, let me circle around to that in a minute. I think the really key element in the In the, in the argument is that you can't you can't really get good care on the cheap and that uh, the notion that you can kind of speed up care work or measure or monitor care work or improve the efficiency of care work uh, is often predicated on a kind of industrial model uh, of almost a sort of a piecework model you know how many patients can a doctor see in a day how many elderly per persons can a, a care worker visit. And I think what we need to really call attention to is the extent to which cost minimization pressures often result in lower quality care. And I think the report that you're describing kind of testifies to that. Uh, and I think the UK experiment with uh, local contracting for care is proving to be a, a very useful experiment with the sad, leading to the very sad conclusion that it doesn't work very effectively in terms of protecting the needs and the quality of life of our most vulnerable citizens. So I, I think that's, it, it, you know, I, I don't know how the discussion will evolve in the future, but I think, I think there's a lot of evidence from other areas that a quote-unquote high road strategy in this area of the labor market would pay off. That is, if you improve the jobs, reduce the turnover, you would get improved quality um, uh, of services. And I think that's an argument that we need to make. We need, if, if we think it's true, we need to find better evidence for it and make it uh, more persuasively. Um, but I also think there's a sense in which women um, are, are, uh, women accept uh, uh, women accept the idea of low pay and greater responsibility for care and even to some extent the stigmatization of these jobs because it's um, they see it as a kind of a moral responsibility and, and, and they, they're embarrassed or, or reluctant to argue that more pay is needed or that more resources are needed and I think that's part of this legacy of the, the selfless uh, care provider. I, I'll give you one example the, in, from the U.S. case. The, there, there were big efforts, there have been big efforts for about 10 years to organize child care workers to demand higher wages. And the biggest problem that the organizers had was that the workers said, well, we don't, we don't want higher wages because parents can't afford to pay. 
In other words, they, because they were identified with the families that they were providing care for, they didn't want to be selfish. They thought demanding higher wages was selfish. What the worthy wage campaign had to do is say, but wages are so low in this sector that turnover rates are over 30%, and it's really hurting the quality of the childcare industry. People can't afford to specialize in a work that do, a form of work that doesn't provide a living wage, and as a result, they're just cycling through at a really rapid rate. That was the argument that persuaded childcare workers to demand higher wages. The argument being, you know, that by demanding higher wages, you will actually make, you you will benefit these families rather than harming them. I was interested in uh, your, your focus on why people go into care work and I, it made me curious about in, in something like nursing or, or education, I guess I think more about nursing but perhaps it's true of education as well, um, those services are provided in, in really a hierarchical, rigid, controlled factory, factory in the in the sense of, of um, uh, very very structured environments. And I wondered, have you ever looked at w whether people who choose to go into care, in fact, find it a satisfying experience, or, 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 or feel that even in these rigid environments, they're able to be be satisfied in delivering their care. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, there is a, a fair amount of research on job satisfaction among care workers, and it, they do. There is a lot of concern among both teachers and nurses with uh, management priorities that reduce costs at the expense of quality. And there's a lot of evidence that what care workers value is, in fact, providing a high-quality service. And if you create an uh, environment in which they can't do that they will leave. Um, and um, I think that's very relevant to the whole kind of management design and, and, and kind of institutional um, design of, of work in, in care sector industries. The, the problem is, is that, that workers often don't have, care workers often don't have the political voice uh, that they need uh, to bargain effectively for higher quality services, and high quality is very is expensive, so I think that um, it's a challenge to figure out how to mobilize and organize in in ways that can uh, address those problems. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good observation, but I think that's because I think this whole, you know, this is what is being renegotiated in a way. Uh, and I think it's, it is uh, a fascinating kind of ideological bargaining process that for years, for, for centuries, we've had this dogma that the home is the realm of altruism and women are its protectors and we don't need to think about women's self-interest. That, that's the argument that, that uh, John Stuart Mill hated the most. You know, he, he, uh, when his father, his father argued that women, uh, w- you know, went before parliament and argued women didn't need the vote because their fathers and husbands would represent them. Perfect altruism in the household, right? Uh, and on the other hand, the market was so masculine and so competitive that women shouldn't be allowed in it or it would somehow denature them. If you want an example of that argument, Alfred Marshall is absolutely unbelievably what's the right word uh, uh, unbelievably sexist <laughs> he said you know he writes you know oh women shouldn't be allowed to graduate study at, at Cambridge because imagine a poor student studying for her exams who gets news that her She's needed at home because a family member is ill. And what a terrible dilemma for her to have to choose between her moral responsibility to the family and taking her exams. Oh, let's not put her in that terrible situation. <laughs> so the, uh, there, this is really, there are, there's this incredible intellectual history of, of, ex, of excluding, of, of, of this moral division of labor, woman, family, altruism, market, men, self-interest. And now that's being mixed up and it's being reconfigured. And so to some extent, you're right, I'm trying to invert it a little bit because I think it's still a pretty hegemonic concept. Uh, I don't mean to invert it, I don't think it can be inverted completely. Personally, I think there is more altruism in families than there is in paid work, but I think it's more, Differences on a continuum. It's, I don't think it's an absolute, you know, I think the idea that it's a binary is really misleading. It, it just seems to be a really difficult situation to sustain an argument that compensating differentials are really driving low wages when people are looking after people in the market. And at the same time, to say that bargaining power is so important and that yeah. it's so difficult to redistribute care for people that you're actually related to in your own children. Yeah. It just seems to be a bit of doublespeak that doesn't join up in a, a very sensible yeah, way. And I it think seems we, to be we need to seize every opportunity we can to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what um, Diane was uh, talking about in terms of the reports we've had recently in this country. Um, Diane mentioned the most recent, but there have been uh, several of them, uh, around uh, care work, uh, paid care work, social care for adults in the main, but also health care as well. Um, and it's been uh, rather dismal and gloomy reading. Um, but I suppose uh, I feel pessimistic, profoundly pessimistic, about the whole business of how we might think about reorganizing 
the performance of care work and how we might uh, think about according more respect to it, higher wages or whatever. Um, I can remember it was in the 1980s now that Cory Viernes, writing from Norway, um, talked about the uh, problems of the 15-minute care slot, for instance, which was being brought in in the public sector by uh, yeah. new management. Uh, so this isn't just about markets, although it's been exacerbated hugely by the marketization of social care, I would think. Um, but we, we had this research, <laughs> great research, being done in the 80s, where now where we are, and in a sense, we're seeing the fruits of that sort of policy, perhaps. How to get out of it now must be an awful lot harder than it might have been in the 1980s. And also, in terms of what we're facing in the future, um, we've got huge volume problems with elder care especially um, and the tendency will surely to be to drive down costs, low skill, uh, low, uh, lower costs and problems, huge problems with quality. I can't really see in the face of the volume problem how we're going to avoid some form of warehousing back to warehousing in a sense. And I also think we can underestimate or, or well, yeah, underestimate the difficulties of the nature of the job itself. There's an interesting example at the moment of a new company that's been set up with the magnificent title of Good Care, which is, I'm sure, designed to inspire confidence, which indeed it should. It's offering home care it charges the recipient between a thousand and two thousand pounds a week. So this is high-end stuff. The staff turnover, um, these staff are quite well trained and command much higher wages than would be the norm. Um, staff turnover is running at 50%. It's not the, the work itself, which often will involve caring for uh, somebody with dementia. You've got somebody, or not even that, but people can be very awkward, let's say. Um, people want to stay in their own homes and perhaps are prepared to pay something for care. Um, however, this is the new domestic service in a way, regardless of what else we're talking about. So I just see really enormous problems in the future, whether we're talking about institutional or home care. I, I don't, I have nothing against pessimism. Um, and you may be right. Um, but I, I, actually, as I get older, I, it, and it becomes more obvious that uh, a lot of these the problems that I have been most, uh, I don't know, the problems I've been most exercised by are not going to be um, solved before I die. Um, I, I, I've actually become a little bit more patient. Um, I, I think that um, we don't really know what we're doing. 
let's just, here's my perspective on the global crisis of capitalism right now. Uh, I could offer you a lot of different kind of a lot, whole logical analysis of why this has come about and, and uh, what the, why I think gender conflict is just as important, and age-based conflict have combined with class conflict to create some very, very difficult coordination problems. Um, but the basic thing is that, that, that things have changed really rapidly, and human beings, basically, we just haven't really figured out a very good way to organize ourselves. And uh, we don't agree on the best way to do it, and we're now sp spending a huge amount of time just fighting with each other rather than working together to actually solve the problems. In my view, it, it, let me just adopt, maybe, maybe this will help, I, let me just adopt my, uh, let me sort of play the role of a conservative, see, see if I can play the role, I will try to play the role of a conservative, uh, a very conservative, a, a, Repu a Republican, uh, a Tory, uh, uh, an Episcopalian, I, I don't know, uh, in, 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 in thinking about this. I mean, the welfare state and welfare state policies kind of emerged in a very ad hoc way. Uh, is a, kind of as the result of various interest groups and you know trade union movements here and women's movements there and you know in fact we don't have a very good it's probably not sustainable the way it's set up right now uh, it's not fiscally sound uh, it's it redistributes money to all sorts of people in very confusing ways so everybody is very suspicious about what other people are getting because they have no idea what they're paying in taxes compared to what they're getting in benefits um, and uh, it's you know I, I support it and I uh, and I um, I think it's a movement in the right direction. But I feel like actually I I I totally get it why uh, uh, there are many people who really hate the welfare state and think it's a mess and should be rolled back and should be cut to the bone and is out of control and is driving uh, the whole. Uh, uh, world crazy. In fact, it is quite screwed up. Uh, and okay, so that that was my that was my e effort to sympathize, to empathize. I'm such a caring person. I'm I'm trying to sympathize and, and empathize with the, the right wing. I, I think it's actually uh, very difficult to to come up with uh, uh, some principles for how we should distribute the cost of caring for children and the elderly. It's very easy to say men should do more and the public should do more, but it's very, very hard to say, well, should men and women share the cost of care exactly equally, always, under all circumstances, no matter what? I don't know. You know, Should the cost of caring for dependents be completely socialized? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think that would work. We don't. You know, how could we be sure that, the, that our public policies are fiscally sustainable and environmentally sustainable? We don't really know. We haven't figured it out. I, I don't know. You know what, you see what I'm reaching for is just, uh, if I'm pessimistic, it's, uh, well, and I'm trying not to be pessimistic, but, but uh, a lot of these problems are just things that we haven't figured. It's not, it's not just irreconcilable political conflicts and differences in priorities. That's not all of it. Part of it is that we don't have a very good plan. None of us have a very good plan.
plan for how the global economy should be organized. And it, it's just a big mess. And so maybe that's not research, maybe I'm not appealing for research, but I am appealing for really thinking about these issues in a bolder and more creative and more coordinated way. That's, that's the part I feel compelled to be optimistic about, which is not, you know, which is very modest <laughs> optimism. Maybe this is actually a wonderful sort of last word which um, we could sort of carry on and um, outside um, where there's a reception waiting. I'm just looking at the time, trying to be Germanic about my uh, chairing here. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, thank you so very much, Nancy. This was uh, absolutely wonderful, very stimulating if also depressing um, uh, talk. Um, thank you so much for your interest and for your comments and questions. And um, join us um, for a drink outside and uh, j join me to thank Nancy so much again.